Hello, I'm Vaishnavi Palapotu. And I'm Kirti Jayakumar. Welcome to the Feminifesto podcast. Where we speak to women from around the world who work in politics, international relations, peace building, development, law and diplomacy. Join us in this journey for your fortnightly fix with plenty of food for thought, moving conversations and the stories of some epic women in their own words. Hi there. Welcome to a new episode of the Feminifesto podcast. In this episode, Vaishnavi and I speak to Sharanya Sekaram, who identifies as a feminist writer, researcher and activist. Based in Sri Lanka, Sharanya works primarily as an independent consultant in the gender space. She is passionate about the democratization of information and resources, as well as access to networks and spaces. In 2018, Sharanya co-founded a feminist collective called Every Story Sri Lanka. She holds an LLB honors and a masters in conflict and peace studies and is also currently reading for a postgraduate diploma in women and gender studies at the University of Colombo. Do take a listen. Thank you so much for joining us Sharanya. It's a pleasure to have you on the Feminifesto podcast. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Brilliant. So let's let's start from the top. Uh from law to peace and conflict and all the work that you're doing in the activist space now. Where did all of it begin? Um so really it began uh, right after I left school I spent a year at the University of Sydney um and I got involved in student politics very quickly I joined the women's collective and that was the first time I had interacted with um and sort of seen the activist space in a in a more sort of formal no well, not formal I think formal perhaps is the wrong word but sort of in that direct way um because while i was growing up in sri lanka while i was aware of um politics and movements and things like that i had never interacted with it directly right as a child um neither of my parents were involved in the activist space in that way so it was always from a distance so this was the first time i had that sort of direct contact and that direct involvement in something and that is kind of where it began really in that way Thank you for sharing that. Um can you tell us a bit about Every Story Sri Lanka? How did it come about and what what is uh, the what do you do with Every Story Sri Lanka? Sure. So Every Story Sri Lanka is a feminist storytelling collective um that I co-founded with my partner in crime um and my best feminist buddy Vidya Kumarasinghe in 2018. So it came from two places. Um Vidya and I had known each other uh, from school. Uh, we went to different schools but we were uh, both a part of Model United Nations and you know debate and kind of where all of these type A people find each other. Um and then we we had kept in touch on and off through the years and then we both found ourselves back in Sri Lanka. Well she was back in Sri Lanka. Um I was here at the same time working on online gender-based violence. Um and that was the first time we had really collaborated and worked together uh despite you know knowing each other for years. And it came from a place of you know it came from two places. One is we wanted to work more telling people's stories and working you know with younger with younger people. and the second place it came from was this understanding that both of us at that point had occupied several feminist spaces and feminism is so powerful but it's also so joyful in so many ways and we wanted to find ways to create 
uh, a space that would also celebrate that joy um, because some of the greatest joy I have felt and some of the most fun I've had have been in these fantastic feminist spaces. Um, and yet the constant impression is that, you know, like, I mean, of course, feminists are angry, like rightfully so. And I don't think, you know, we should ever apologize for our anger or say we're not, but we're also joyful and, and there's so much joy and liberation and celebration in these spaces. So we wanted to f create a space that paid homage to that. Uh, and that's where it came from. So we built it, <laughs> built it, you know, sort of sounds like this very lofty thing. What we really did was ate our way through all the snacks that my parents had in their house while seated at their dining table and talking about lofty ideas. And then we were very lucky uh, and, 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 you know, really honored that we applied for funding to um, Frida, the Young Feminist uh, Grant, Young Feminist Fund rather. And they gave us some money and that really just opened up a world of possibilities because suddenly we could do this, right? We had the money to do it. Um, so in May, we had, we spoke to a few people. We knew we wanted to, we wanted them to come on board to the team. And we were all sort of set and ready to go in April, uh, 2020. So February, we interviewed everyone, you know, we kind of had a conversation and we were ready to go. And then like sort of mid-March lockdown happened in, in Sri Lanka. And then we were like, okay, you know, this was still when COVID was going to be a thing that went away. And we were like, okay, okay, we can delay. So we delayed for a month. And then we realized we couldn't delay forever. And by which point I had had the great privilege of working with organizations like COFEM, uh, which are remote-based feminist organizations. So we said, why don't we do this? So we started working remotely um, in May, 2020 with this fantastic team of two women. Uh, the third joined us in um, June uh, or July. She joined us in July. And then the fourth joined us very recently. Uh, so it's been the six of us working. And in fact, we just had our very first in-person team meeting, minus Vidya because Vidya is based in London. But the rest of us gathered uh, physically for the first time in 10 months. And it was incredible. That sounds so exciting, Sharanya, and thank you so much for also presenting the value of female and feminist friendships. Um, I think I think I found myself nodding very vigorously when you were sharing that because that's Vaishnavi's and my story with Gender Security Project and this mm. podcast. Uh, so yeah, it was beautiful. It was very, very validating and powerful to hear that. So uh, with, with every story, Sharanya, one of the things you mm. do is also to curate safe spaces for women to discuss feminism. Um, surely that must have come with its own challenges. Uh, what were some of those, those things that you had to deal with and how did you respond to it? Um, that's a great question, Kirti. So it was really new. Um, it's really new, right? And I think I don't know, you know, in some ways we still don't know what the challenges will be. I think the first space, safe space that came is in whom we picked as team members. We didn't go with people who had experienced in activism in a formal way in some senses, um, certainly not with gender activism and feminist activism. We went with people whom we knew were bright and smart and, and passionate and amazing women. But we also knew that, you know, a lot of them, and, and this is something, you know, our team has said to Vidya and me several times is that they were, they had an interest in this, but they were also afraid to sort of vocalize the interest or engage with conversation around issues because they were afraid they'd be problematic and they'd be cancelled or they said the wrong thing um, and they were just kind of navigating their way around it so the first safe space really began with our team and you know with the interns we brought in and our and you know our team is 
it's funny because our interns refer to us as older women and we're all like in our 30s being like i guess we are older women to you um but they that has kind of been the first space you know for us to really say things and talk about them and unpack them without feeling watched and judged and uh pressured about you know how we're saying it is it the right thing to say is it you know problematic is it you know whatever because a lot of this time there isn't space to learn and understand you know we all have internalized misogyny we have internalized casteism internalized classism that we have grown up with and it it's it's a whole thing to unpack it and i think sometimes we don't give each other the space to you know grow and have that journey uh that kind of led us to building the young feminist network which was um a similar space and which is a network now of almost 200 plus uh, women and girls who are signed up to the network they get a newsletter we host learning circles and we have a fantastic intern Hansati who's just come on board with every story to help us kind of um build a network as well and think a little bit more about how we can engage people um i think one of the challenges has been demystifying feminism uh, because i think sometimes vidya and i because we've we've spent so much time reading and and educating ourselves we sometimes forget that a lot of the spaces we've had the privilege to occupy and the conversations we've had the privilege to have not everyone does so sometimes you can you find yourself falling the trap of being a bit like oh i roll like oh my god don't you know that but then no, how would they know that because 5 years ago i didn't know that right so i think creating you know constantly checking ourselves to be accessible and checking ourselves to be patient and and remembering the tenant of what it is we we wanted to create has been a challenge the second has been particularly in the sri lankan context is to find material in uh, the vernacular in sinhala and tamil um and there's so much material in english um and it could just be that we're not talking to the right people and that we are also so used to finding material in english we've never just really reached out and you know done the focus work that needs to do to know even if things are happening in the vernacular but that has been a really important interesting challenge and then the third one has just been understanding that there is a generational gap um you know we as millennials like to think of ourselves as still quite young but there is a there is gen z and there is sometimes a gap between us um and reaching out and trying to navigate that gap like i didn't really you know about 3 months ago i was like a uh, tiktok what is even tiktok people are really can't not be doing activism on tiktok and then i realized like that's exactly what the previous generation said about like instagram activism or twitter activism or whatever right so it's also been like constantly i think for me the challenge has been checking myself and checking my own more problematic assumptions about people's learning and their journeys and just really being hyper aware of it absolutely and you know what you said about the fear of being outspoken especially in young women and you know um people who are just beginning to identify themselves with feminism is something that again resonates a lot with keith and i especially given the current political climate all over the world and indeed the whole journey of unlearning internalized misogyny self censoring and sexism is a huge challenge in itself so thank you for bringing that up so one of the things that you stand for very strongly is the democratization of information and resources so mm-hmm. how hard is that to fight for in a world that is steadfast in going in the other direction <laughs> um super hard 
insanely hard sometimes um i think so for me this democratization of information resources also is it's tied into the work of yfm you know i call it academic activist privilege and i think people who had the privilege of having getting to be in these spaces have these conversations all the time sometimes don't understand that what we're saying makes no sense to someone who's hearing this for the first time there's a big difference between being accessible and then being oversimplified like or oversimplifying things right and we often conflate the two um that's definitely one thing that i kind of feel really strongly about uh you know we are the world is so capitalist and everything is about that somehow you have to earn um everything that you have and that somehow there has to be a price for everything whether it's emotional labor or physical labor or you know monetary value and it's really hard to push back against this because there is also you're also pushing back against a generation to some degree who struggle to have access to certain kinds of resources and you know like for example i remember having this conversation with someone who said you know one of these real uncle types who was like i had to walk like so many hours to school okay but shouldn't we be building a world like what is the necessity shouldn't we be then focused on building a world where nobody has to do that anymore um why do we feel so it feel that it's so necessary for everyone to have to pay the same price that we did and i find this in activist spaces sometimes is that you know you will have people who say and i've done it i've said it you know oh we had to really like do our work to like find these resources there was no like google doc or drive whatever okay but then what is the point if we're just repeating the struggles like shouldn't it just be okay great nobody has to struggle to do that anymore now we can focus on something else kind of a vibe i mean i don't know if i'm making a lot of sense but for me it's just why do we have to make access to everything so hard and and what is the purpose of making access to everything so hard and for me in a lot of ways it just turns people away from wanting to engage if that makes sense it makes complete sense and i think that has to be one of the most valuable articulations in this context that i've heard so thank you so much sharanya actually um so let's switch gears a little bit you you've been engaged with take back the tech as well uh, tell us about mm. that oh wow so take back the tech um so it really i mean take back the tech is also this fantastic story of like passing opportunity and feminist sisterhood um was i had i had obviously followed their work um and i was aware of their work as aware of the feminist principles of the internet um and i was working on online gender based violence in sri lanka and uh uh someone i know um uh who had engaged with apc and take back the tech was invited for the take back the tech camp which was held a few years ago and she stepped down and and suggested that i go instead and she wrote to them and said like i've had the opportunity to engage in these spaces but i know sharna hasn't um and that's a really valuable lesson that i learned from her because you know that's we, we sometimes never do that we don't think about whether we actually had access to spaces and whether it would benefit someone else more than us um you know because again this whole like access to opportunities we sometimes hoard it uh so i went i went for the camp and then i i've been you know engaged with them ever since and it was such a phenomenal experience so what for me really stood out about that camp was that there were two camps that happened parallelly uh one was the feminist tech exchange camp which was like data security people involving data security um you know all these like really high tech stuff and then there were people 
like us at the Take Back Tech Camp who were campaigners and not necessarily technical experts or not necessarily like tech experts, but who were working on online gender-based violence in you know, whatever capacity. And I remember when I saw the women who were at the you know, feminist tech exchange, in my head, I had always thought of people with this kind of skill set as like your sort of Silicon Valley bro, right? you know, the Mark Zuckerberg, the hoodie type. And then in Sri Lanka or in South Asia, you know, you have, the, you know, the kind I'm talking about, right? Like the Bangalore tech IT park kind of bros. And I remember looking at this room and there were these phenomenal women, these non-binary people, piercing tattoos, colorful outfits, like absolutely shattering every stereotype. And it made me challenge my own, like, I realized the own, my own kind of perspective and stereotype that I'd held in my head without even realizing it. Like without even realizing it, I had sort of internalized this. And I remember that being such a standout moment that kept me being like, you know, this, this amazing like non-binary person, they were like, yeah, you know, I can do this X, Y, Z. And I was like, oh my goodness, like that, that's the point, right? It's about someone's skill set, not at all what the external presentation is and our assumptions on that. And the second thing I really remember about the take back the take and the, the, you know, the both camps was that, again, it was about feminist spaces, right? And in fact, it was following that camp that we, we so there was a the reflection circle we did on self-care and feminism. And I wrote a piece for Gender IT, which is the blog that APC runs, um, or the, you know, that they run on, on these issues. And I mean, it's an article that just keeps popping up and some, and it, it was so like, it reaffirmed to me why feminist spaces and these, the creation of these spaces and these circles and these camps and whatever are so important because it just, it's such a, fan, it's such a fantastic safe space, um, you know, like, women come you know people come showing up like in the morning some some are fully made up some are like not even like are not wearing a bra some have shown up in their pajamas and nobody cares like you do it for you you do it for you and it's just such a phenomenal space um and it's really those spaces have really made me think about you know even with every story and with YFN what we want to create the kind of mood and the vibe we want to create Thank you for taking us through that, Sharanya. Um, as a lawyer and a postgraduate as well in peace and conflict studies, do you find that these two domains are at odds with each other? <laughs> um, so I probably should tie fair and say that I did a law degree, but I never, ever became a lawyer. I never practiced. Um, my mother's a practicing lawyer. I pushed back so hard against even doing a law degree, and I will grudgingly admit that it was probably, you know, one of the smartest things that she pushed me to do because it helped me find my interest and helped me find, you know, what I was interested in, in you know, the ideas of social justice. Um, with peace and conflict, it was very complicated. I did the masters and then right after I did my masters, I sort of left that space, which is a bizarre kind of way things fell into place. I found that what we are taught and what is reality are two different things. I was very lucky at law school that I had really phenomenal lecturers. Some of them were feminists. Uh, all of them thought through a social justice lens. So they were able to get us to think about the law and challenge the law, challenge notions of what is legal, but what is ethical, who decides what is legal and what is ethical. 
Um, so we had a lot of those conversations. I remember uh, we, we talked a lot about abortion, for example, in, in our classes. We talked about, you know, criminal justice, you know, is, is punitive justice always the thing? So I, I had a fantastic, like, space to have, unpack those things. With my master's and with the work in peace and conflict, what I struggled with was, one is I struggled with being typecast, um, which is a big reason I left the space. Because I was a Tamil woman in Sri Lanka, post, post-conflict, post-war, I don't know about post-conflict, but post-war, um, you know, involved in the space, I found that I was, and I grew up in Colombo, right? I, I didn't grow up in, in the areas where, like, I mean, while Colombo had its share of struggles and, and attacks during, during the war, it, it, it's not the same, you know, it was not the same as what happened in, in like, say, the north and the east of the country. And I found that I was, I, it was hard for me to, I'm trying to find the words for this. Um, people cast me in a role that I didn't necessarily fit. Uh, because I fit their ideas of what they wanted to project about the conflict or people who had been involved in the conflict. Um, and I was young and I was, I hadn't fully, I didn't have fully formed ideas and I was navigating a lot of things. But what I did find is that what is legal is not always what is right. The legal system isn't always the place that is going to is where we can find solutions, uh, especially for wider problems. It's not the only place. Uh, and somehow we some, you know, tend to fall onto this that law reform is fine. And as long as we have laws, everything will be fine. And you know, we know that it's also a system and it's also tied to other systems of oppression. And we need to think about that. And I think working in peace and conflict in a country like Sri Lanka, which has such a layered and complex history towards peace and conflict, was something that I struggled a lot with because I don't think, at least when I was there, there was a level of nuance that was needed that I was, I didn't have the skills and the tools and the exposure to really bring to the table, but also that I don't think was wanted, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for being vulnerable with us and also sharing about the things that you didn't know at different points in time. And I think that's, that's a very powerful um, form of leadership, by example, in so many ways. Um, so, Shami, I'm going to actually take off a point from what you talked about, which is uh, systems and structures and how they can also be oppressive. So do you believe that, I mean, I'm sure you might answer the affirmative, but I'm going to go out and ask anyway. Do you believe that the legal system needs a feminist reform? And if yes, what would that look like? Do I what? Sorry, I missed that last bit, Kitty. Sure. Uh, do you believe that the legal system needs a feminist reform? And what would that look like? Oh, I think it desperately needs uh, feminist reform. Um, I, I have to say that, I, I have to say that, um, that criminal justice, and I haven't done a lot. I mean, like I'm just beginning to grasp my own understanding. <coughs> sorry, about, um, about criminal justice reform from a feminist perspective. Uh, and I, you know, for like the longest time, I didn't even know that was a thing, right? And then I'm, I, I discovered it about three years ago and now I'm reading and, and trying to understand it, which is, which is a, a whole area. But I, I do think it needs to, I think 
you know, for me, bringing in a feminist perspective also challenges notions around the criminal justice system, around notions of class and caste and systemic racism and systemic casteism um, and how and who gets justice and access to justice um, and who designs these ideas around notions of justice. Uh, and something that really strikes me, you know, when I think about it is, for example, we know that in, in South Asia, queer bodies, queer lives, queer existence is criminalized. Sex workers are criminalized. Um, we know that what is, and also we know that when, you, when we think about it as feminists, that punitive justice um, and criminalization is not always the solution that's in line with our feminist principles and our feminist beliefs. And I think something that comes to mind really strongly is you know when you talk about rape and 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 the death penalty and the kind of roaring support there is for the death penalty and then you talk to feminists and they are like mm, well we know that violence meeting violence with violence is a problem secondly we know that the justice system in itself is is deeply flawed and like who is going to be on the receiving end of the death penalty thirdly is that really uh, going to be the like we know that here, for example, you know, the problem is the length of court cases. It takes 14, 15 years to prosecute a, a rape case. So it's not really the, the punishment that's a problem, but the process. And I think all of these layers really have to be unpacked and, and talked about in, in so many different ways. Absolutely. And thank you for taking us through that. So you've also worked with survivors of gender-based violence. So in this context, do you think that the adversarial justice system still holds good in prosecuting sexual and gender-based violence? You know, the truth is, I really don't know. That is really the truth. I, I don't know. Um, and sometimes I think in some ways it's our only solution in some places, in other places, it is a problematic solution. Uh, I'm constantly grappling with the larger, wider philosophical thought process we need to have and need to think about and unpack versus like the, the reality of current ongoing struggles that women and girls and survivors of sexual and gender-based violence you know, are, are struggling with. I don't know. I wish I had a better answer, but I really don't know. Absolutely. I think that makes complete sense because like you, like you beautifully pointed out, it is the only option in several places and it's a flawed option in so many places as well. But Sharnia, it was super insightful and super um, powerful as a learning experience for us to listen to you. And before we let you go, what are you working on currently? What's happening on the work front? Uh, a few things. Um, we just released, as part of my work with Voice, we just released the We Must Do Better flagship report, which is an amazing report. You can go to the Voice website to download it. It's also on my Twitter. Um, COFEM is constantly uh, doing some very cool things. We have a couple of side events for CSW coming out at the moment, um, which I'm really excited about, particularly a panel I'll be on where we're talking about intergenerational feminist activism and intersectional feminist activism. And I'm very excited about that. And with every story, we're doing something which is making, you know, making me like literally jump out of bed every morning, which is we are building an archive of stories of Sri Lankan women. Um, and so we have, uh, we are at the moment, by the end of April, we will release 30 stories on social media 
of phenomenal women and girls, including the first female civil engineer, um, a captain, former captain of the Sri Lankan women's cricket team. Um, we have uh, a disability and uh, sexual sexuality rights activist. We have, um, you know, an, a couple of educationists, couple of MPs, really, really like phenomenal uh, women um, that I'm really, really excited that we're working on documenting. And yeah, that's really the thing that's giving me so much joy right now. So it makes me so happy to hear that the work you're engaging with these days is making you jump out of bed. I think that's really <laughs> such a heartwarming thought. So on that note, um, thank you so much, Sharanya, for your time and for giving us this opportunity to feature your voice and your story on our podcast. Um, all the best for all of your upcoming endeavors and we wish you all the more uh, power. Thank you so much. I love being a part of this. Thank you so much for thinking of me.